that nice? God will surely listen to our prayers because of Christ. Sometimes you feel like, oh man, I'm, not, I'm so unworthy. There's no way God would listen to my prayers. And you're like, yeah, that's, you're exactly right. You're right. If it, was, if, if it was just you, he would not listen to your prayers. But because of Christ, his blood, he will listen to our prayers. We've been, we've, uh, we, that's why we can cry out, Abba, Father. Because of Christ. So uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17. This is a very practical section of Mark's gospel here, which is every, every section is practical in some ways or another. But this is, uh, this is very relevant as it pertains to uh, what do we do in light of the fact that when Christ comes, does it change how we view politics? Does it change how we view government? Does it change how... How how economics relate to not just us but but the uh, the culture as well. So um, absolutely right. Of course, the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. So what you see here today is uh, you're going to have some of these questions addressed as far as politics and government and some of these things as far as as far as uh, what our role as far as the Christian's role is in in these in these conversations so uh, let us pray let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help us and then we'll look at this our great God we pray now for your Holy Spirit we know that apart from you we can do nothing as we just confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism Lord our utter dependence upon you especially as it pertains to being illuminated to understanding for understanding your scriptures give us that illumination O Holy Spirit open our eyes to see Christ, Lord, to see ourselves in light of the gospel, convict us. We pray that you would cut us and then encourage us and build us up in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is Mark 12, 13 through 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to eating, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he, he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. And I think we're going to have to cut this into two parts. We'll see how far we get. But I, I, I'm assuming that's what we'll have to do. Uh, but for the first part, so remember two weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 12, Christ had just, and this is important too, because Christ had just told them, he's just delivered what's called the parable of the vine growers. And he's he just told them, look at verse look at verse, uh, verse 9 here of chapter 12. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. And they knew Go down to verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. He, they know that he's predicting, he's prophesying judgment upon their heads. He's saying, God is going to come in and destroy you guys for, for rejecting the Messiah. And so now he's turning around in verse 13, and you'll notice this. Look at verse 13. So then they sent some of the Pharisees, the ones that he had just spoken this parable to, right? They sent some of the Pharisees. Well, who's they that sent them? You know, you have to ask yourself that, right? Who, is the, who are the people? Well, this is an official delegation from the Sanhedrin Council. So now things are getting very uh, crucial. The tension is starting to mount. They're sending this official delegation. And you notice here it's not just the Pharisees, but it's also the Herodians. Now, this is a very interesting couple because the Pharisees are completely different from the Sadducees. 
or from the Herodians, excuse me, and the Sadducees. But the Pharisees are purists when it comes to the law. So they, they thought salvation was, uh, you're saved by scrupulous observance of the Torah, plus extras to be safe. You know, so it's like, okay, so you got to observe the Torah, and just to be safe, we're going to add on some other regulations and restrictions just to be safe, just to make sure we follow the Torah. And so they're purists when it comes to this. The important thing for this is that they favor the revolution. When I say revolution, I'm talking about the idea that the Jews are trying to overthrow the Roman government because the Roman government is seen as Gentile oppressors, occupants in their territory. So they are in favor of the revolution. They are in favor of overthrowing the, the, the Roman boot that's been on their neck for a while. They're in favor of that. And they are very, very, very anti-Rome. Okay. Well, with the Herodians, the Herodians are, are a, a type of political pressure group. They do, they support Herod and they support Rome. They're not in favor of the revolution. They're not in favor of overthrowing Rome because they're in league with Rome. A lot of what they do depends upon Rome. So they don't want Rome to be overthrown. But you notice what's going on here. When it comes to Jesus, they, they yoke together for the purpose of attacking Christ. This would be, now just to kind of look, because it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, you know, just how different these groups are and, and the fact that they're working together. Okay, put it this way. It would be like the independent fundamental Baptists, the KJV only kind of legalistic type of Baptists, independent fundamental Baptists, right? Yoking with the liberal Harvard Episcopalians who worship plants. That's what this would be like. These groups don't mix. It's like oil and water. They don't get along. They don't mix. They hate each other. They want nothing to do with each other. But when it comes to Christ, they're willing to come together for the purpose of overthrowing Christ. That's how, that's how different these guys are. All right, now, here's the other thing on this. It would also, here's another one. It would be like, it is like, have y'all ever noticed, okay, how strange it is when the liberals or the Democrats, whatever you want to call them, liberals, when they support Islam, you notice, and you're like, well, that's kind of weird, right? Because Islam throws people like that off a building. I mean, what, what is it with this? Well, you notice they come together for the purpose of overthrowing things, let's say in this context, something like sound doctrine, right? Something like, like Christ, Christian conservatism, all right? But when it comes to Christian conservatism, you have these groups that will come together for the purpose of, of dismantling that. That's what's going on here. And, and Matthew Henry says that all of them alike are haters of sound doctrine when it comes to every party out there in the universe that are not Christians. Are, they are haters of sound doctrine. They are haters of the gospel. They are haters of scripture. And so when it comes to Christ, they will come together for the purpose of overthrowing that. And that's what we see here. You see the Herodians and you see the Pharisees and they're doing that. They're, they're joining arms and they're trying to overthrow Jesus. Now, that's the first thing in verse 13. Okay, so they've been sent here in order, and you see why. In order to trap him in a statement. In order to trap him. Now, in verse 14, they come and they say this. They say, teacher, we know that you're truthful and defer to no one. These guys are liars. They're snakes, right? Remember what the Bible says about the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. The devil comes up to Eve. Hey, you know, did God really say this? Oh, no, God, God's just jealous as he wants you to be like God. Or he doesn't want you to be like God. He's jealous. He's afraid. And so the, the devil's a liar. So they come up and they say, hey, we know you're truthful. Well, they this is the same group that said that he's possessed by a devil. 
But we know you're truthful. They're flattering, right? They're flattering. Why are they doing this, by the way? Ask yourself this. They're trying to disarm suspicions. They're trying to lower his guard so that he kind of gets buttered up and he says, oh, okay, well, maybe you guys are kind of coming around and you're on my side now. And so he's going to be a little more transparent and open with them because if he's open and transparent, they're hoping they can capture him, as it says in verse 14, in a trap. They want to trap or verse 13, they want to trap him. So they're thinking, okay, well, maybe if we butter him up and we say, hey, Jesus, we know that you're truthful. We know that you defer to no one, and that basically means your translation might say you're no, you're not a respecter of persons. You know, in the old days, if you're reading the KJV, I guess you know today too. But if if you're not familiar with that language and you're reading, okay, Jesus is not a respecter of persons. You're like, what does that mean? He he goes around just disrespecting everybody, right? No, that's not in the KJV. In that language, it's talking about that he is not going to. Uh, he doesn't. It's like one of the, it's it's a person that doesn't care. He just wants to please God, whether whether you like him or not. His motive, his his agenda is just to please God. He's not into flattery. He's not going to tell you things just to just to make you feel good. He's going to tell you. You might not always want to hear it, but he's going to tell you the truth. That's what they're saying. We know that you're so truthful that you defer to no one. You don't fear anybody. We know that your only purpose, your only business, is to please God. So they're thinking, we'll butter them up, you know, and, and, and so that's what they're trying to do. But look what they say here next. They say, for you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. They are, I mean, think about, now you almost wonder, I mean, just the fact that they think that Jesus is going to believe them when they say this, when he's been wrestling with these guys for three years is, is, is alarming. But they do say this, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Okay, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, there's a few things that, that, first of all, we have to look at here. Okay, Now, number one, Jesus is not a modern Western American. All right? So this is, uh, you know, sometimes people look at this, and they'll try to distinguish between um, politics and religion or church and state. All right? That kind of notion was not, that didn't exist in the days of Jesus. Now, the whole idea of separation between church and state, and it really doesn't exist, I mean, technically, in the way people want to say exists, doesn't exist here either, right? But... They do want to make this distinction where it's like, okay, or excuse me, our culture wants to make this distinction sometimes with this passage, and they'll say, well, this is about religion versus piety, or religion versus the state, okay? That's called anachronism. That's called anachronistic. When you're, you're trying to apply certain standards that existed 2,000 years ago, or our standards, you're trying to apply our standards back to a time period 2,000 years ago, okay? The second thing is this. This is... The question, so when you just read through here, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? You're thinking, okay, well, that's a pretty simple question, but here's the thing. There's bitter history behind this question in the days of Jesus because 20 years before this question is asked to Jesus, this, this whole idea of paying a tax to Rome just began 20 years prior to this. Okay, so that's the first thing. Everyone from 14 to 65 is required to pay a poll tax to Rome. It started 20 years before this question was asked Jesus. And this, when they started this, when Rome began this, it led to a revolt. It, read, it led to an attempted almost coup and, and uprising against the Roman government and the Roman occupation in Palestine, in, 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 um, in Israel in those days. 
So you see, there's a lot of there's a lot of tension and bitterness behind this question. So when they come up to Jesus, in fact, in fact, the whole idea was this: if you're a true Jew, there was this slogan going around that they would say, "No tribute to the Romans." That was a popular slogan, and if you're a true Jew, you would say that slogan: "No tribute to the Romans." Loyal Jews do not pay taxes to Rome. Okay, so this is a hot topic issue, very controversial question that they're bringing up, because the tax was a symbol of Roman occupation. It's a symbol of the fact that we don't we don't own ourselves that that Rome owns us and we're we have to pay taxes to them because they because they're basically the ones that are over us. And for a Jew, pride and everything else is kicked up and they hate that idea. These are pagans, these are dirty gentiles. And so but here's the thing. So think about why they're asking Jesus this question. Okay, yes they're trying to get him into trouble, but they're also trying to split up his followers. Because who follows Jesus? We've already seen who his disciples were. You have zealots in part of his disciples. The zealots were the revolutionary party. You also have people um, like Matthew. Matthew was a what? He was a tax collector. He was working for Rome. So you have anti-Roman revolutionaries, and you also have people who are working for Rome indirectly, as part of Jesus' disciples. So what they're trying to do through this question, because they know, going back to verse 12, look at verse 12 from last week or two weeks ago, and they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Why did they fear the people? Because he had a large following. People were, un- people were believing him. They were on his side. So if they can split up the, the group, then Jesus will be less powerful, less influential. So they're trying to cause these factions, these splinter groups to take place within Jesus' own group. This leads me to a point that's very important on this, okay? How does the devil operate so often? We see this in the early church. We see this for the last 2,000 years of church history. He operates by causing factions and splits and divisions. The devil has always tried to do that. The devil, through these men, are, he's, he's doing that here. He's attempting to do that here. And what's the topic that they're trying to do it? Through politics, economic theories, things that still continue to this day. Very, it's, a, it's, it's, it's still a hot topic issue, right? Politics are always hot topic issues. But within the church, it's, it's imperative that despite our differences, now I'm not saying, look, I'm not talking like, Republican Democrat differences. I think it's it's so extreme now that, you know, I mean, if you can support anyone, any group that, that is in favor of abortion and in favor of LGBTQIA, PKK+, or any of these other groups, then it's hard to, in fact, impossible to say you're a Christian on the one hand, and you also support groups that support that. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not talking that. I'm talking in-house kind of stuff. I'm talking in-house political debates. Okay, because that's what's going on here. This is an in-house debate as far as the Jewish population was concerned. This was an in-house debate among Jesus' disciples even. And so for us as well, it's very important to not allow, let's say someone who's really... And this is one example, just on the fly. But you, you know, you have one person next year. You can only imagine. You know, you're going to have diehard Trumpers, and you're going to have diehard whoever the other guy is, like DeSantis. You know, and and there's and there's the temptation within churches even to come and dispute and fight over this to the extent that now we're bitter, now we hate each other, now we don't want to talk to each other, and that's that's not the Christian ethic, right? That's not the the Christian ethic is to forbear despite our disagreements. These are not gospel things. These are not gospel issues. I'm sorry, they're not. Now, they're important issues. I hate the whole thing where you have like 
you know, prior, or uh, what is it like, uh, tertiary, secondary. I mean, I'm always kind of iffy on that because it's like, okay, every, it makes it almost sound like some doctrines aren't important. Every doctrine is important. These things are important. In fact, that's Jesus' point here. Jesus is, he's, he's, Jesus is not so heavenly minded that he has nothing to say about politics. As we'll see, he does have a lot to say about politics. But it is to say, as these discussions come up, just be mindful of the fact that it's okay to disagree with someone politically when it comes to political theory, when it comes to what things might look like down the road politically. Still, still, you know, disagree and still be brothers. It's still not, because that's what they're trying to do, and that's what, as God's people today, we have to be on guard for, for that not to happen in our own hearts, that we become bitter and we become um, jaded and callous because someone disagrees with me when it comes to political theory. All right, so that's the thing. But look what Jesus says in verse 15. Shall we, shall we, they say, uh, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? All right, now again, remember, this is a very hot topic, controversial subject because they know if he says, you know what? Yeah, we should pay. Then he's going to tick off basically most of his followers. All right, because they're, 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 Rome is, is the aggressor. Rome is the oppressor. If, if he says yes, or if he, so if he says, yes, we should pay, then he's going to take off his followers. If he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, then what happens? Well, now he is in rebellion against Rome, rebellion against the, the people who are oppressing them. And so now Rome has, they can go to Rome, and Rome can come in and, and, and clean up house with Jesus and his followers. Because they'll say, look, he's, an anti, he's anti-Roman, he's a revolutionary, he's one of the bad guys. Okay, So they're trying to, they're trying to frame him. Now, this is his answer, though. Okay, he says, bring me a Roman coin. Bring me a coin. Why are you testing me? He knows what they're doing. Verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy. Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. That's a coin, right? It's a Roman coin. And here's the thing. On this coin, okay, it's not just any coin. It's not like you have, you know, like you pull out a penny and you have George Washington and no one's offended that George Washington is on the penny unless you're a liberal because George Washington was, you know, he's a white dude and everything else, but, all right, you, in general, right, you have a penny, it's no, whatever, we're not, especially as Christians, right, here's the thing, though, if you're a Jew, bring me, bring me a coin, okay, they bring a coin to him, here's a coin, all right, well, guess who's on the coin, Tiberius, the Roman occupier is on the coin, and not only is Tiberius on the coin, on the front side of the coin, there's a picture of, a, of, of Tiberius's face, and it says, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, that's on the coin. Son of the divine Augustus. On the back side of the coin, it says he is the high priest of what? Of the Roman cult. High priest and son of the divine Augustus. All right? So this is very, very offensive. Not only that, before a Jew, to have any kind of engraved image of any person was highly offensive. And so his face, even his face being on there, was a, 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 a mark of, uh, of deity if you were a Jewish person 2,000 years ago. And so why does he do this? This is... This is Tiberius. This is Rome's way of communicating something. It's something, you know, something we, we forget about when it comes to a coin. This is, you, I mean, if, if you just look at everything that's written on a, on a coin, on a dollar bill. I'm going to do a Creflo dollar here. Okay, but look, okay. When it says all of this, so what does it say? So ours, of course, says, in God we trust, right? This is a form of communication. 
is communicating certain things, certain principles about what the country believes, right? That is why they're so offended by it. You know, sometimes we, I pull it out because we take it for granted. There, there's, there's language on here, though. Even when it comes to, there's, there's Latin on here that no one knows anymore. Annuit. Kleptus. What's that mean? Anyone know? No one knows. All right. Yeah, we don't even know, right? I mean, but some, 200 years ago, they knew this. Because they all do Latin. They're like, oh, yeah, this is that. It says uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum. Anybody? Anybody? Right? Okay, we don't know what this means, but at one point, we did know what it means. And the point is, is they put this on there for a reason. That is why, especially when it's fresh, you know, if there had never been a dollar bill in the country, and then all of a sudden, okay, now we have an opportunity to mint our own money, it's very important what is put on the money. They know that. And so when it's fresh, 20 years later down the road, when you have a picture of Tiberius on one side, and it says he's son of the divine Augustus, and on the other side it says he's the high priest of the Roman cult, well, they're going out of their way to offend the Jews. So when Jesus says, okay, bring me a coin, bring me a denarius, and they bring one out, they're already showing themselves to be compromised. What are you doing with this coin in the first place? You're going to ask me about my perspective or my opinion on this coin? Why do you have one in the first place if you're so concerned about it? If you're so bothered about it, why do you have a coin? That's kind of what he's getting after. It would be like this. If President Xi comes in and China occupies America or something, and this is you know just another hypothetical illustration. He comes in, he occupies the country. They start minting their own money. You have a picture of President Xi on the front, and it says something like, President Xi is the son of God, and he's the head of the church. All right, now I'm a little, right? Now it's, uh, I look at the money a little differently now. So that's what's going on here. So by having it, Jesus is saying, you are recognizing Caesar's rule over you by the very fact that you have that. Now, whether that's wrong or not, we haven't got there yet. But look at verse 17. This is his answer in verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, that's what we're going to deal with today. Like I said, this will probably be two parts. So next week we'll cover what does it mean that Jesus says to God, render to God the things that are God's. This week we're going to cover two. what does it mean for Christ when he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, to tackle this, we're going to cover, okay, first of all, four things that this does not mean. It does not mean that the state and the church, like we want it, we want to say, have no relationship to each other. Okay? So, and why do I say this? Well, first of all, look. So in other words, he's not shifting the question from religion to piety. He's not saying, okay, look, that when it, that's Caesar's turf and I have nothing to say about it. That's Caesar's domain and I have nothing, there's nothing, I mean, whatever, whatever Caesar tells you to do, do it. Okay, it's not what he's saying. Because now, first of all, that is a, did you know that's actually a very, it's an 18th century idea. And it, it, you know what this does? It prevents Christian critique of the culture, if you take that stance. Okay? Prevents Christian critique of the culture. It prevents any kind of prophetic witness of the church when it comes to public policy. And that, of course, unfortunately, it's, it, there is some of that in the church today. There's this mindset where it's like, hey, you know, the church can't, that's not the church's role. Politics and, and, and what the uh, public policy and, and, and legislating morality, all, that's, not, that's not our business. That's not, 
that you know, legislating things that 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 like abortion. They say, hey, that's not the church's. That's hey. In fact, you would not believe how often this comes up in my encounters with Christians, everyday everyday Christians who have never really thought through on this topic. They'll say, well, you know, I know that it's okay. So for a Christian, it's okay to say abortion is murder and abortion is wrong, but we have no right to go to the country or to go to the legislators or to go to the politicians and say that you need to ins- you need to make sure that the the populace knows that abortion is murder. Right? Have y'all heard this? I mean, this is a very common thing. They'll say it's 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 one thing for us to believe this is Christians, but because this they'll say this is not a Christian nation, so therefore the 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 the, the society, the government has no business legislating things based on God's word. So so and we're gonna run through some of this. Okay, so but that's that's that is again it's a very 18th century idea. Remember um, why, well, here's the second thing. Caesar and Caesar slash government is also under God. Is Caesar under God or not? Is the government under God or not? Turn to Romans 13, and we'll see this. Okay? Now, there is a difference. There is a separation in the sense of the church is not the state, and the state is not the church. So there's a separation in that sense. We're not saying there's not, okay? But both church and state are under God, directly under God, directly responsible to God, directly held accountable by God, both church and state, okay? The state, in other words, does not operate autonomously. They can't just do whatever they want to do without... And and look, take take it, go throughout history. Has there ever been a nation, a, a nation that that is a let's just say a, a wicked nation, an immoral nation, an evil nation? What does God do to wicked nations throughout history? He judges them. Why? Because they are responsible to Him. They're under His authority. Right? Every nation that is wicked, God has judged, or He will judge. And so here's Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. You see that? Whether it's the president, whether it's a mayor, whether it's the senators, whether it's it's whether it's police officers, whether it's the county or state or city judge, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Why? Because this is God ordained. But here's the caveat: for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil behavior. Right? So what's God saying there? The reason God places rulers in their positions of power or authority is so that they, look what it says right in the next part, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same, so that they will praise what is good. That's why God has placed authorities where they are, so that these authorities will praise what is good. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God or a deacon of God to you for good. So that they'll be servants of goodness, of good, of that which is good. And they will praise that which is good. They will praise and they will serve that which is good. They will instill, they will enforce that which is good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. Why? For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices not good but evil, right? That's why God has ordained government, 
That's why God has placed people in positions of authority in, in, in places of, of, of rulership so that, why? Let's go back through it again, okay? So that they will praise what is good, so that they will be servants of that which is good. They bear the sword, not for nothing, but so that they can avenge wrath on the one who practices evil. Okay? So right there it shows us that the government... The people in power are placed there by God, and they're under God's authority. Okay? Now, it, the third thing is this. Or the fourth thing. Okay? Justice in the civil realm is important to God. It's important to God. In other words, when you see injustice in the land, does not the Psalms talk about how the land that, that forgets God God will destroy. Why? Because justice in the civil realm, not just in the church, justice in the church is important to God, but justice outside the church is also important to God. Why? Because that's his, that's also his sphere. That's also his realm. God is over everything. So when there's injustice, when there's evil, when there's crime, when there's murder, when, when these things are taking place out, even outside of the church, guess what? God is concerned about that. God is, that's important to God. Okay, so, give to Caesar. Look what he says. Look, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, let's talk about the next part. Now, what it is. Okay, those are things that it's not. It is, okay, what, it, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying government is a gift. Okay, go back to the context here. These Jewish the history of the history of the Jews is uh, a lot of time. Even going back to the days, remember when when God delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and the first thing they start doing in the wilderness is complain and bicker and grumble and moan, and they whine, and they're they're trying to they're trying to rebel against Moses. They want to kick Moses out. At one point, they're trying to stone Moses. So they and, and then it goes. It's, it's always so. The history of the Jewish people, without I, I don't know how else you say it. They, they do at times, just like we do, act like spoiled children. When they don't get their way, they want to overthrow everything. They want to just they, they want to annihilate everything. They just let's 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 uh, anarchy. You know, let's let's do away with it all. So this is the culture that Jesus is talking in. There have been revolutionaries in Jesus's day that have risen up and tried to overthrow the government. Okay, in fact, we've seen this before. What do people expect the Messiah to do? Don't they expect that from the Messiah? The Messiah is going to come in. He's going to overthrow the government. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to destroy Rome. Remember this? This is, this, is the, this is the assumption. And so what Christ is saying is that, look, anarchy, anti-government, revolution in this, in this way is unbiblical. Okay, So that is what he's saying. Paying taxes to Caesar is not the end of the world, in other words. okay. The second thing is this. And we see this with Paul, but we see this especially with Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Pursue peace and order with people. Pursue peace and order. Even remember when he says, hey, if, they, if the Roman soldiers come up and they want you to carry their luggage for, they carry their gear for a mile, he says what? Carry it two miles. If they slap you on the cheek, turn the other one to them. What is he talking about? He's talking about something like this. Okay? So promote peace. Tax, you know, the other thing is this. There's a quote from Calvin on this topic. We don't have time to go through it. But he talks about how, you know, what they're saying is this. They're assuming that if I pay taxes, it's some kind of compromise to my spirituality. 
And, and, and Calvin's quote bears, shows that this is not a compromise to pay taxes and, and, and because that's how they're seeing it. They're also thinking this, okay? They, when, is, let me ask you a question. We've gone, through, we've gone through Mark enough now. Okay? Would you say that in the days of Jesus, there is a revolution taking place through his ministry? Would you say that what Jesus is doing is bringing about a revolution? You could say absolutely he is. That's exactly what he's doing. Okay? But the revolution is not coming about in the way that these zealot revolutionaries are expecting. They're expecting the revolution to come about through sword, through anarchy, through the overthrow of the Roman Empire, through anything, any oppressors to overthrow all of them. Okay? There's a revolution that's taking place, but here's the thing, okay? Jesus' revolution is attacking at a far, at a more far-reaching level than just taxes and the person who's on the throne. Why? Because he's going. What is it? Think of this. Okay, what does the cross do? What is wh look when 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 you're talking about revolution? This is true for even Marxists would say. I remember look when you when you talk to Marxists, when you talk to anybody who's who you know is looking at okay, how do we change systems? How do we change? How do we change governments? How, what 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 can we do? How does this look? Well, the first thing that happens is the ideology changes, the mindset changes, people's minds change about a certain thing. If you bring the sword in without people's minds being changed on that topic, the sword's not going to do anything long term. So what Jesus is doing, what the cross does, what the resurrection of Jesus does, what the outpouring of God's Spirit does, is it changes people on the inside. It changes their mind. It changes the way they see reality. So that that's how revolution takes place. Revolution takes place... I mean, think of this. If I go into my home and I'm saying, okay, look, I've been converted. I've been, let's say I've been born again, and, and, I, and now I want to do things as, as, you know, we are going to change. Our home is going to change. How we worship is going to change. Everything's going to change, right? But if I go into my house and I'm trying to tell my wife that, and let's assume my wife is not converted, how's that going to go over? It's not going to go over well. She's going to think I'm out of my mind. She might even go along with it, but inside, she's not, she's just going through the motion. She's not really behind it. She's, I mean, now here's what, here's what happens though, right? Here's what happens. As this is taking place, God's Spirit is working through this change in me, in my home, so that rather than, let's say, you know, let's say my wife is not on board and I just, you know, I start beating her or I start, you know, cussing her out or whatever. I, you know, I lock her in the room or whatever, right? That's going to make it worse, is it not? That's not, that's not going to help. And so Jesus is saying, look, this is what you guys are trying to... See, you guys want this like immediate, short-term overthrow of the government. The revolution I'm talking about is much more long-lasting. It's, it's, it's further reaching. Why? Because I'm aiming for the heart. Whereas if I go, going back to that metaphor, if I go, if I go to my house, my wife's not a believer, and I'm talking to her about the gospel, and I'm... I'm I'm living it. I'm living it. I'm demonstrating it. I am. I'm still talking about this stuff, and my life is changing. Things are changing, right? Guess what? She's going to see this. She's going to see it. And by God working through that, He's going to convert her. And you know what? Even if she's not converted, even if she's not converted, you know, you still have a because that's a type of revolution. It's still going to be much more effective than coming at it with force. 
And that's what he's that's what Jesus is saying here. So this is not not paying taxes to Caesar is not the game plan for bringing in some kind of new order of things. This is too superficial. This is too on the surface. What Jesus is dealing with is Jesus is talking about look, when the apostles go out and they start bringing the gospel to these other places. And they, they, you, you read the book of Acts, and they're getting stoned. Their riots are occurring. People are coming after them. And you know what they say about these guys? These are the guys that are turning the world upside down. How do you turn the world? They don't have. Look, they're not. They're not going around. You know, like the like the jihadist Muslims chopping people's heads off unless they believe. They're going around with the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel, and guess what's happening? By God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, now the cross is an offense and a scandal, so people are reacting a lot of times with anger. But guess what's happening? They are turning the world upside down. And it's not through making people not pay taxes. It's not through going around and saying, okay, you're no longer allowed to pay taxes to Caesar. We're not doing that anymore, so don't do that. They're not, they're, they're not, they're not touching that. And yet, there's a revolution that takes place. And so what happens? Well, the entirety of, if you go back 2,000 years ago, what does Greece look like? What does Rome look like? Well, these are pagan areas. These are pagan states. Within 400 years, y'all study church history. You look at church history, what happens? Eventually, the gospel does come in, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, these nations do change. The Western Europe changes. America changes. Today, China is changing. It's in the process of changing. And guess what happens? Now you have different laws. Now you have a different culture. Now you have different views of politics, more biblical views of politics. You see that? So if you take this and look at today and we say, okay, look, enforcing laws according to God's word is important. That's good. That's what we should try to do and want to do. Absolutely. But at the same time, if you don't have a populace that is understanding of, okay, why is it important to have God's law as far as how we, how we view things and how we look at things, if, you, if you're dealing with a population that doesn't believe that, well, you can, good luck, right? This is why this stuff happens through regeneration. It happens through churches, good, solid churches, preaching and equipping people with understanding of what the Bible teaches regarding politics, regarding these other the, you know, work ethic and everything else. That's where it starts. I can't just go out with my Bible and say, okay, Joe Biden, you have, the, you have the duty, the obligation to do this. He does, right? He does have the duty and the obligation to enforce things. The police officers in our city, the police, the, uh, the, the mayors, the, you know, the, the, the judges, right? All, whoever it is, whoever is a magistrate, whoever is in office, whoever is there, they do have that responsibility. They're, an, they're accountable to God. But if they don't understand this stuff, if they don't believe that, then guess what? They're not going to, they're not going to do it. But then, of course, that leads us to the problem of Christless conservative politicians. Does it not? Because how do you get politicians who say they're Christian, and yet they come out and they don't, they don't, they don't make decisions based on Christian principles? They don't regulate things according to God's Word. What happens there? Well, either one, they're not Christian, or number two, they have not been taught the necessity of their role as a magistrate and what they need to do. And that's Jesus' point. Just coming along and griping about the taxes, that is a, that is a symptom of a deeper disease in the Roman state, this whole idea of taxes and occupation. 
And just like in our day, these are symptoms. When you look and you say, okay, abortion is murder, and somehow, somehow, murdering your child is, is permitted across the nation. Somehow, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. It really is. Literally, it is, it is insane. And yet, at the same time, and that's true for that, that's, you know, you can take whatever is, you know, a man marrying a man. Did y'all see? And I'll, I'll, I'll show you the, uh, the consequences of this, but there was an article last week, and it was, in, uh, it was on Twitter. I saw the article on Twitter. The article was a scholarly article. It was about uh, this person who was saying, okay, if we're going to allow a man to marry a man, and it's consensual, and they love each other. And that's all we've heard for the last 20 years, right? That a man should be able to marry. If You should be able to marry whoever you want to marry because you love. As long as the two love each other and it's consensual, then it should be perfectly acceptable. Per, 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 excuse me. Uh, perfectly fine. We've heard that forever. Well, this, this guy, he's not a, he's, in fact, he wrote the article under a pseudonym because he knew that it's going to hit a lot of backlash. But he says, okay, the, the consequences of this, and he wasn't saying it's wrong, by the way, but he was saying, okay, if we're going to permit that, why are we not allowing people to marry their dogs, for instance? Because that's consensual love, is it not? Or marry their mothers. It's, if it's consensual. And he was, he was making the point like, hey, if, if we're going to go down this route, let's go all the way with it. But you see what happens there. So here's what we have. We have God's Word that, reg, that should regulate a society. God's word, whether that's natural law, whether because that comes from God, whether it's more ideally moral law, which is an expression of natural law, these things come from God. Okay, but to the extent that a nation is not being governed by God's word or by God's natural law or revealed law, then then that nation is going to come under God's judgment. Absolutely, and the absurdity of that nation will eventually make itself known. But Christ's point is this. In order for a nation or society or culture to change, it takes regeneration. It takes people's hearts and minds being changed, and that's the revolution Jesus is bringing about. So that when the Roman Empire is changed years, hundreds of years later, even then it's going to have all kinds of flaws and warts. But the point is, is that this is much, much more long-lasting Okay, then what they're after here, what they want. So he's saying, look, trust the process. Trust the process. Revolution. You know, here's the other thing too, and we'll close with this. Look, in your own life, think about this in your own life. If, if you have people who come in your own life, you're saying, okay, look, what is it that has changed me? What is it that has changed my mind about abortion or, or about uh, same-sex marriage or about you know, how I'm supposed to treat my wife or how I'm supposed to live in light of God? What has changed me is the Holy Spirit working in me and bringing about that change. And in light of that, you go out and now guess what? In my home, my home looks different, not because of me, but because of God's Spirit being poured out upon my home, right? And then I go to work, and through me at work, and through you at work, guess what's happening? Your workplace and your environment is going to look different. It's going to change as well. And now, as good citizens of this country, that this the city that we live in, in our country, in our state, good citizens, we have a responsibility also to the city that we live in, right? The area that we live in. So now we're going to be more faithful in city politics. We're going to be more aware and astute about what's going on. And now we're going to have, we're going to be bringing some light there as well, some revelation there, or dare I say, revolution there. 
And then if, if that, if you if you couple this with a whole bunch of us doing that, and a whole bunch of people throughout the land also engage in these things at home and at work and in society on a political level, guess what that culture is going to look like? Is it not going to look more and more like the Bible? At least what God has intended things to look like? Of course it is, right? So that's how this stuff works. And so Christ is saying, look, trust the process of the new birth. Trust the process of what Christ has done through the resurrection and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit working on people. And that's why eventually, what's the, what's the objective for Jesus, the Great Commission? Why? Because societies change through good churches. Societies change through good you know, people being converted and their homes are changing. That's how society changes. And then, of course, these, these you know, people from these churches go and they become politicians and they, they you know, they, they become, I mean, wherever you work, of whatever kind of um, vocation. You're changing these areas. And so that's what Christ is saying here. So this is the power of the new birth. You know, the thing is, is this, okay, Christ is, is what he's done for us. We always, I, 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 at least I do, we underestimate the power of the gospel, how powerful that is. How powerful the gospel is. And this is not, because think about it. The gospel has, has, has penetrated cultures. The gospel has penetrated wicked institutions, wicked governments, wicked societies, wicked homes, wicked hearts for thousands of years and changed things and done things and caused the world to be turned upside down. And you look at things like even slavery, all of these things that were very Typical and common. Even today, very, slavery is very common today throughout the world. Well, why is it not common today? Because people were bringing the Bible's morality to bear on chattel slavery in the West and saying, okay, man-stealing is evil. Man-stealing is wrong. And eventually that same thing will happen with abortion. 300 years from now, you won't hear about abortion hate taking place in the West, uh, hopefully. But you know what, though? The thing is, is that's the power of the gospel. It changes individuals, and those individuals through the gospel go out, and their societies are changed. And that's what God has done, and He's given us in the, in the, in the gospel. Jesus, that He comes and dies for sinners, and then sinners go forth in the power of God's word, and they go out, and through them, things are changed. So we don't change things by, well, I mean, if, if we are called to, you know, there are times when I, I assume taxes would be impermissible for us to pay regarding what's going on. You know, there are times when that might be the case. But in Jesus' context in his day, he's saying, guys, look, this is not a compromise. Pay the stupid tax. You guys got way bigger issues than the tax right now, namely your heart. So that's what he's saying. Then next week we're going to look more about what it is to give to God what is God's. Okay? All right, let's pray. Christ, we do praise you. We praise you for the, for the change that you have wrought in us. and we, we praise you for the change that you've wrought in this society, in this culture. Lord, although this culture now is overrun with wickedness and perversity, well, we can also look back 300 years ago and see that there were no churches here 300 years ago, that there was no gospel being preached on this soil 300 years ago. And Lord, we can go all the way back throughout time and we can see that this is true for the whole world, that wherever your people have not been, that wickedness and evil has flourished. 
And so we praise you that the gospel does change cultures and, and, and uh, through the power of your spirit working in us as we go out and we, we see homes changed, we see nations changed. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, O oh God, to, to better understand what your will is for us regarding things like politics and, and society. Lord, we know that you've called us to be good stewards of the things you've given us, and that includes this, this city that we live in, and that includes especially certainly our homes and this church, uh, Lord, our, our nation. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to be good witnesses here, Lord, to be people that point people to Christ, and at the same time be people that, that do turn the world upside down in the power of the gospel, Lord, as we go forth and, and, and we stand on, on your truth and stand on your scriptures in the face of controversy, in, this, in the face of, of, of people uh, railing and, and, and opposing us for standing on your word. We pray that you would give us grace to know uh, when, when to take a stand and, and, um, and, and when to yield regarding things like taxes. So, Lord, give us this wisdom. Give us the grace to be able to discern these matters. Lord, give us grace to have backbone. We pray that your people in, in all of our vocations, Lord, uh, would have backbone and have courage and be people that not only uh, that we would speak the word of truth, but that we would also be consistent in our actions and our life. Lord, help us in this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the beauties of taking the Lord's Supper, too, is sometimes when you preach verse by verse,